Good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. I'm obviously joining you virtually today. Our daughter Charlotte has tested positive. Uh, Tim and I are negative, but we have strict protocols at St. Paul's to make sure that in-person worship remains safe as possible for all of you. I recently realized something that is a terrible piece of advice. Just be yourself. I've said that so many times to our daughters on the way to a party or an interview that they might be nervous about. Those are the exact words that I've used when I've counseled many a young adult about applying to be a priest. Oh, don't worry. The interviewers, they just need to see what you're really like. What? No, they don't. Just being myself is a bad idea. And I think we all know this. If we were content to just be ourselves, there would be no medical system trying to shore up our naturally decaying bodies, our troubled minds, let alone the beauty industry. There would be no need for counselors, therapists, or even friends. No, we need help if we're gonna make something beautiful out of our lives. A man named Lord Radstock stayed in a hotel in Norway in the mid 19th century. He heard a child playing the piano downstairs in the hallway. She was terrible, banging away at the keys. And he soon became irritated and was about to go and talk to someone at the hotel to get her to stop. But as he got up, he saw an older man come and sit down next to the young girl and start playing alongside her. He began playing chords as she banged along then slowly adding in individual notes to complement what she was doing. Slowly but surely, the result was beautiful music. Radstock later discovered that the man playing alongside was the young girl's father. And he was, in fact, none other than the famous Russian composer and pianist Alexander Borodin. We all need help if we're going to make something beautiful out of our daily lives. We are seven weeks into our E100 series, looking at 100 essential passages from the Bible. Uh, you might be with us for the first time with uh, questions and doubts. No problem. We'll catch you up. And today we encounter one of the least familiar of those 100 passages. It's from a book called 2 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. It's about King David, how he wanted to do something wonderful for God, but instead God was doing something wonderful for and through him, showering David with covenant love, which would then make something beautiful out of David's life for millions of other people and can also for you and for me. But before we unpack what's distinct about covenant love and how it can fill in the gaps on the piano keyboard of our lives, let's catch up on the context. The Israelites had been slaves in ancient Egypt. Their great leader Moses had led them out of slavery, the Exodus, and his successor Joshua had taken them into the promised land, roughly modern day Israel. And you'd think they would have been devoted to the God who had totally delivered for them, but no. And eventually God relents to the Israelites' request to have a king like the other neighboring countries. It's kind of an ancient version of political FOMO. And their first king was the charismatic but troubled King Saul, with king number two being David, the most famous of the kings of Israel, whose son in turn was the wise, 
yet extravagant King Solomon. David reigned from about 1000 to 962 BC, and while first coming to our attention as that spirited young boy who kills the giant Goliath, he spent most of his adult life consumed with violence and war, and he battled his predecessor Saul in a nasty civil war and has now firmly established the boundaries of his kingdom by defeating neighbors who were encroaching on his turf, think Russia and the Ukraine. But for now, the fighting has settled down and David has some time on his hands. And the narrator sets the scene in the first verse. It's 2 Samuel 7, if you want to be following along. Verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. David had begun to feel a bit guilty. Once he'd conquered Jerusalem, the neighboring king of Tyre, in a chapter right out of how to win friends and influence people, had offered to build David a suitable palace in Jerusalem, a palace which David now lived in. But at the same time, the earthly symbol of the presence of God is housed in a simple tent, not like the palace that David was now twiddling his thumbs in. Surely God's glory requires something more than this, David thinks. We need to make God great again. We must build a palace. He runs the idea by the prophet Nathan, who agrees without skipping a beat. Good idea, David. Go build God a beautiful house. But that night, God intervenes. Now, we can't really tell the tone of God's reaction to David's initiative. Is God touched or ticked? We don't know. I don't need you to build me a house, David, says God. I didn't need a house when I rescued the Israelites from slavery. I didn't ask for a house as I led my people through the wilderness to the promised land. I didn't ask any of the judges or you to build me a house. I'll be in touch. And in fact, I'm going to give your son Solomon that honor. So after this rebuke to not get ahead of himself, always a timely reminder to bring all our good intentions first to God in prayer, God unfurls this incredible promise of covenant love to David. Verses 11 and 12. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish this kingdom. Your kingdom, your throne, will be established forever. Through E100, we've seen how God made covenants with Abraham, then with Moses, uh, covenants that would echo military and economic treaty agreements common in the ancient world at this time. You don't invade my country, I won't invade yours. You send me X number of slaves, I'll send you cedar. But as Tyler made clear last week, what's incredible about the covenants that God makes with the Israelites, I will be your God, you will be my people, is that despite the fact that the Israelites always, like every single time, drop their end of the bargain, God still upholds the covenant. God stays faithful. Alexander Borodin sat down next to his daughter who was playing all those wrong notes and slowly and surely turned it into beautiful music. And what's so extraordinary about this covenant that God makes with King David is that there are no conditions 
set out by God that need to be met by David for it to be fulfilled. The reliability of the promise rests entirely in God's faithfulness, which is not only incredibly loving, but also savvily pragmatic of God. <laughs> because as you read along with E100 this coming week, you're going to read of David's rape of Bathsheba and murder of her husband and how his son Solomon collected wives like others might collect vinyl. David and Solomon just being themselves. One of your descendants, David, will be able to hold up both sides of the covenant, the divine end and the human end, so that my promise to always be your God, to love you to hell and back, so that promise can be fulfilled and trusted. The opening lines of the Gospel of Matthew. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a reason that the Gospel writer Matthew was at pains to record that Jesus was a descendant of King David, showing his readers that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David in Jesus's very own person, fully human, fully divine. The covenant is complete. David, you don't need to build me a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom and not any old kingdom confined to a beautiful building in the Middle East, but a kingdom for all of humanity, including people who will one day live in a city called Toronto. It's this covenant love of God, of God holding up both sides of the bargain that can enable us to make something beautiful out of our lives. How? Well, there's a difference between what's called the common love of God and the covenant love of God. The, the common love of God is the love that God shows to everything that God's made, creatures and creation, uh, which may seem obvious, but many Eastern religions and Western philosophical systems are based on a fundamental rejection or critique of our earthly existence. Not so Christian faith. God so loved the world. But the common love of God, God's love given freely to everyone, doesn't actually require us to enter into a relationship with God. We're given perfect freedom by God how to choose. We can respond to that love with a yes. And if you're tuning in today, questions and all, you're at least a little bit curious about what it would be like to say yes. And if we have said yes, and many of you have, then we enter into a relationship with God, a covenant, one in which God decides to do all the heavy lifting. Because Tyler said so well last week, we fall, we fall, we fall. And in any relationship, there is going to be guidance and correction. Alexander Borodin slowly taught his daughter how to play the piano. And the covenant love of God has a calling to learning and obedience within it. In verse 14, God says that God's going to be a father to the Israelites, lovingly correcting and guiding them. And in any truly personal relationship, the other person needs to be able to correct you, contradict you even. If, if a wife can't contradict her husband, they don't have an intimate and loving relationship. And if you don't have a God who can correct you, contradict you even, who can tell you which notes to play on the piano, 
then essentially you've got a God of your own making. Only a God who can challenge us, correct us, is a God actually worth getting to know. This is the help that we need to make something beautiful out of our lives. It's God's covenant love made real in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which can challenge and shape us because it springs from God's willingness to so completely identify with us and our broken lives, to suffer pain like we do and, and death on our behalf, utterly selfless, which if we're honest, is the opposite of our patterns of behavior. We, we tend to look at other people and, or, or another person and say to ourselves, well, I've got needs that have to be met, physical, emotional, and if this person's willing to meet my needs, open doors for me, affirm my choices, then that's a good relationship for me. We're attracted to people who will build us up. We call it love, when often it's a hunger for someone to build our ego up. Take a close friendship or a marriage. It usually starts with ego-driven stuff. That's okay. Person's good looking, fulfills a physical desire for you, or they're a good listener, makes you feel heard. But eventually, any real friendship or good marriage is going to need you to move beyond your needs and into the desire to seek the other person's joy, their happiness. Imagine at work having the kind of heart that's not crushed when someone else gets the promotion or the affirmation from the boss that you were wanting. God's covenant love can shape us into being the sort of people who are genuinely happy when other people get ahead of us. God's covenant love doesn't just leave us being ourselves. Thank goodness. God not only frees us from the burden of needing to be good people, but God also says that we are going to be built into a house, a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Us. God actually wants to use all of us, like together. <laughs> Not content just being ourselves, but leaning into one another. Christianity is a team sport. To feed the hungry in our city of Toronto, to build nursery schools for Tanzanian children, and support and encourage each other through the ups and downs of daily life, whether you're single or a young parent or you're retired. Take the bread and wine today. I really wish I was there in person with you as tangible reminders of the covenant love of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.